Hello and welcome to Working Man's Pod, Talking Dead with Alex and Dave. I'm Alex, and in just a moment I'm going to be joined by Dave. Because this is our first episode, I want to give a quick intro to the show and let you know what you can expect from us you know, as we continue to make this, this show in the coming months and hopefully years. So Dave and I are uh, good friends, we've known each other for a long time, and I think that we would both describe ourselves as deadheads. So in our private lives, when we have conversations, they often veer into conversations about the dead, what shows we're listening to, what parts of those shows we like, and what parts of those shows we love. And we realize that we both love talking about it, and when we go to dead, well, in this day, dead and company shows or what have you, we love hearing other people have similar conversations, and there really isn't a ton of that out there on the podcast market right now. So we figured why not give it a shot and see if we can record something entertaining um, where it's just us talking about the dead. So each episode, what we're going to do is pick one concert from the Grateful Dead's touring history, and we're just going to have a good conversation about it. So today's episode is about the show from February 5th, 1978 at the Unidome in Cedar Falls, Iowa. Part of that show was released as Dick's Picks Volume 18, and we had uh, we had a lot of fun listening to it and a lot of fun talking about it. The next episode is going to be uh, released right around the same time that Dave's Picks Volume 41 comes out. That is a show from May 26th, 1977 at the Baltimore Civic Center in Baltimore, Maryland. So if you want to get a head start on the listening for the next episode, um, if you're not a Dave's Picks subscriber, Go find that on the archive. If you are a Dave's Pick subscriber, just listen to the CD, and um, in the next couple weeks we'll have an episode out about that. Another thing to look forward to about that episode is that we will have some new recording equipment for it. We originally recorded this one as a test episode to see how our equipment would fare, and it turns out that it, it did just fine, but we both know that the sound would be better with just slightly better recording equipment. So. Um, we had such a fun time talking um, about this show that we decided we would release this episode anyway, but we are getting some better recording equipment, and from episode two onward, we will be working with, with some better stuff. So um, if you think that the audio quality could be better, um, we agree, and we're going we're gonna to work on it for the next episode. A couple of quick shout-outs before we get into episode one. First, shout-out to Steve, Rob, and the team at Osiris Media that puts out 36 from the Vault which is an excellent Grateful Dead podcast among among many Grateful Dead podcasts that exist. But the way that they discuss each episode of the Dick's Pick series uh, is part of what inspired us to you know, record our conversations about Grateful Dead concerts, knowing that there are at least some people out there who are interested in hearing people talk about Grateful Dead shows. So shout out to those folks. Um, they create great content. Also to the people who release the good old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead, which is just an excellent deep dive into different topics about the Grateful Dead's history. Highly recommend listening to them. There are so many people who are putting out Grateful Dead content and who have put out excellent books, uh, radio shows, it, the list goes on about the dead over the years. So um, without you know listing people for 10 minutes, just all of those people too. Also to the people in our lives who got us interested in the Grateful Dead. I know Dave would want to shout out his uncle Kyle, who was um, a, a good 
uh, influence on his dead listening experience. Um, and for me, uh, a number of people, both of my parents liked the Grateful Dead and went to see a few of their shows during the 80s. Um, also, Dave and I both really enjoy the internet radio show Time Crisis, so shout out to them for talking about the Grateful Dead as much as they do. We could go on and on, but instead I think we might as well just let's start the show. Thank you for listening. We look forward to you uh, spending some of your time with us. And if you have uh, any questions, if you want to reach out, you can reach us on Twitter at WorkingMansPod. Cheers, and I hope you enjoy the show. Unidome, February 5th, 1978. The way that we picked this is I asked you if there was a show you wanted to talk about. And you said, can we find one from the day, either of the days the Giants won the Super Bowl that involves the, sh- the song Deal? And I just stumbled upon this show. I was looking at um, uh, Listen to the Music Play, I think is the name of this book that I have. Um, I want to get the name right because I want to shout out this author who put so much time into this. And it's really an amazing resource. Yeah, listen to the music play by Justin Mason. It is literally 2,600 pages long, and it has every stat you could possibly imagine about the Grateful Dead. Every show is listed. He talks about some that are like not confirmed. Um, he talks about whether there are set lists available. And so when I searched for... Um, February 5th. I just looked at all the February 5th shows and this was the first one that had deal. What I didn't know that we were getting ourselves into is one of the great Grateful Dead shows. Yeah. Good all around show. You know, it's, it's a Dick's Picks. It's Dick's Picks volume 18. And I think people might be like, oh, you guys are just picking a, a good show because you wanted a good, easy listen. But that's not, that's not why we picked it. We picked it because it's the anniversary of the greatest upset in Super Bowl history. When- <laughs> 2007 New York Giants made the Patriots 18 and one. And I think it's actually the anniversary of the 11 one. Oh, okay. Yeah. So still a great upset. It's important for the people to know that the 2007 New York Giants, <laughs> the Patriots 18 and one. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's kind of the organic nature of how this show was picked. Um, February 5th, 1978, like you said, uh, Dick's picks volume 18, that, era of Dick's Picks shows, they weren't on the current Dave's Picks regime of full shows all the time. It was a lot more collaborations. I think that they didn't have as many tapes in the vault at that point in time, because this one came out in 2005, uh, volume 18. And um, so this th- that Dick's Picks 18 is mostly from this show. It has disc three of the three discs is all of set two, minus the encore. And disc one has four songs from set one. Um, I guess what for? Yes. In one second, I will let you do that. But first, just to close the, the gap on what other songs are on it. It's um, shows from the preceding two nights of this little Midwestern run in uh, Madison and Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So yeah, um, I'm going to, I'm going to let you guess what songs from set one are on disc one when we get a little bit closer to the set list. Um, back to like the, the show and the details of the show, um, what was happening in the culture at this point in time, this is the same day as the NBA all-star game, which was played in Atlanta that year. The MVP of the all-star game was Randy Smith, a guard from the San Diego Clippers. 
Um, so yeah, that's how long ago this was. Uh, I don't never heard of Randy Smith. I would think probably a good player if he won an all-star game MVP. Um, but it's interesting. It, I mean, to think about how far, uh, the NBA has come since that time that it wasn't even televised live. It was on tape delay. Yeah. So interesting time in the NBA, in the broader culture, uh, disco was fully taking over the United States. Uh, Saturday night fever was the number one movie in America this week in uh, time. And on that point, I actually just recently heard a, a really interesting story about Saturday night fever and the dead. So when that movie came out, apparently Mickey Hart was, just all over it. He loved it. And um, he brought Jerry to go see it. It must've been right around this time, maybe like two weeks before, one week before, something like that. Um, And apparently they were both so taken by the movie and the soundtrack by the Bee Gees that when they got back to the hotel, they like gathered the entire band and they tried to explain to them disco, including like acting out the dances, explaining, you know, four on the floor until all the other members of the band got the the gist of it. And that kind of brings me back to the point that you were making at the very beginning about Shakedown Street coming on the heels of this. They recorded Shakedown Street about four months after this concert and Shakedown Street is a disco song. I mean, really? So it's interesting that it had that kind of an impact. Um, Have you ever heard the dead playing staying alive? No, I don't think so. (laughs) Okay. If I can find it on the archive, I'll drop it in here um but maybe i'll send you the link after this they only start doing that after they took a trip to the movies Yeah, it only happened once as far as I know, but it was like they were just kind of noodling around um, the way that they would with, you know, other little jams. Um, It's interesting. It doesn't sound bad, honestly. Um, So other things happening, uh, February 5th, some famous birthdays, Henry Aaron, um, Roger Staubach, two sports icons of the 60s. Hank Aaron would have been I think right around retirement at this point, Staubach was definitely retired. Michael Mann, known director, uh, a lot of great movies, Bad Boys, Heat, stuff like that. Um, Tim Meadows and Chris Parnell of Saturday Night Live fame, both birthdays are February 5th. And then two of the great modern soccer players are football players, Cristiano Ronaldo and Neymar. So a good, a good day for birthdays, February 5th. Yeah, a, um, good, a good sports birthday day. Definitely. For two of the top five soccer players in the world. Yeah. And I mean, just a good sports day in general, surprisingly, because you don't think of February as necessarily a great sports month, but you have those birthdays. Like I said, the all-star game was played on this exact day. And then three Super Bowls played on February 5th. Um, only one that we really care about, but still three Super Bowls played on that day. That's, you know, not the case for every day in late January and early February. So that's not so bad. Um, yeah. But the show was played at the Unidome, UNI Dome. Um, not sure, no disrespect to you and I, um, so some, some info about that capacity is 22,000. It was built just a few years before, um, this show in 1976 at the time it was built at the time of this show, it had an inflatable roof. Um, so the type of roof that 
you would probably be familiar with from the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome in Minneapolis. Uh, the Carrier Dome in Syracuse, New York is also uh, an inflatable dome roof. Is it? Interesting. Leave so, yeah. So they've kind of moved away from that. That's very 70s um, architecture because even the the the, the uni dome the uni dome doesn't have that anymore they it it was punctured during a bad snowstorm in the aughts and as of 2010 um, it has a steel roof to it now but the inflatable dome was very much in place at the time of this show and apparently it led to some odd acoustics um there is a great story about this concert on dead.net from Conan H. I'm just going to read the whole uh, comment because it's great. After a night of hard rocking, we stayed at the same hotel as the dead in Cedar Falls. We topped it off the next morning by eating breakfast with Garcia and Mountain Girl at the Holiday Inn restaurant. There were about 20 of us who stumbled in and pushed our tables together over by Jerry. He was totally cool about it and talked with us for a long time. He commented about the strange feedback and vibrations he kept getting off the ceiling of the inflatable dome. It's interesting. It's not something that I would have ever been able to pick up on just listening to the recording, but it, it does make sense that an inflatable dome would have some weird reverberations for the band in the audience. Once you know that, when you listen to it, particularly in set two, you can, you can hear it. And there are songs where it works. Um, spoiler, start. And there are songs where it actually, you can tell it kind of hindered them a little bit, like in Truckin'. Um, in set two, there are parts where, you know, trekking is kind of like a back and forth between Bob's fast singing and then the band coming in hot. And when the feedback is going during those vocals, it kind of takes away from it. But when the feedback was going like during solos and stuff, it was kind of, it made it like edgier. I, I, I actually kind of liked it. And when you know that, and when you listen to it, it's, it's interesting. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That I didn't really pick up on the, um, the reverb or that. So that's interesting. Next time I listen to it, I'll, I'll try to pay attention and see if I can pick up on it. But, um, that is interesting. The, the dome, just to kind of give the last bits of info about it. It's the home of the UNI football Panthers, a division one football team. I think their most famous alumni is David Johnson. Um, it used to be the home to their basketball team, but it is no longer, they have a dedicated, um, basketball arena on campus now. So the tour, um, this is a quick one, and this is kind of an interesting year, I think, um, 78 in Grateful Dead history. So first we'll talk about the tour quickly and then get into the year. This one was really just a brief run through the Midwest. I mean, you could, you could maybe argue that it was this tour started in January in California, but I think that those were kind of two separate small tours. In January, the band did a little run up and down the California coast, and then they played one show in Eugene. So it was 11 shows between like January 8th and 22nd, something like that. Um, and I mean, there's a famous show, probably the most famous show from 78 is the closing of Winterland on New Year's Day. Um, well, technically New Year's Eve, but they didn't start playing until midnight. So, I mean, that's a January 1st show in my book, although on uh, archive it's listed as the 31st, but um, that night they played from midnight to 6 a.m. So I would count that as a New Year's Day show personally. Um, but then you have this little January run up and down uh, California, and then this little tour, three nights at the Uptown Theater in Chicago, then to Madison, Milwaukee, and then here to Iowa. And then that was their last show until April. Um, I know that in March, the Jerry Garcia band was touring 
and I would imagine maybe one of Bob's projects, I think at the time it would have been Bobby and the Midnights could have been doing their own tour, but there's a great uh, Jerry Garcia band live release volume four from March of 78. He had Donna and Keith in his band at that time, and they sound amazing in March of 78. So talking a little bit about the year, uh, like I said, I talked a little bit about the beginning of the year, but 78 was a really busy year for the Grateful Dead. You are coming off of uh, 1974. They only played 40 shows. I say only, but for them, that's not that many. Well, it's not even one a week. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And so then um, 74, that's the case. Uh, 75, you only have four shows because they were on a hiatus and they were getting together and playing, but not doing live shows. Then 76, they come back from the hiatus, but they only play 41 shows. Uh, 77, um, obviously a great year in Grateful Dead history, but 60 shows, still not that many for them. And then 1978, you have 82 shows, a a real full calendar of touring. Um, So like I said, you have a January tour through California, then this little Midwest run in February took March off, and then they're really off and running by April, doing some serious touring all around the country. Interesting time in their studio career, too, because in 77, Terrapin Station comes out. So you have some some new songs from Terrapin that are now like fully integrated into the set lists. There are four on this show alone. And then later this year in 78, they come out with Shakedown Street, and you have new songs from that album on this show as well. So um, interesting time. They're putting out some great records. Um, I think I know that people, yeah, people's mileage may vary on those two albums, but they're both, I think really good. And the last two that they put out with Keith and Donna in the fold and the first two that they put out with, um, Mickey in the fold since I guess working man's dead. I, well, he probably was on American beauty, but I'm blanking right now. on if he was, um, because he left the band in right around that time, um, toward the end of 1970. Um, so I bet he was on both of those albums, but then you have the intervening ones, all the Grateful Dead um, records. You have Europe 72, which he wasn't on. Um, you have Wake of the Flood from the Mars Hotel, Blues for Allah, and um, Skull and Bones. He wasn't on any of them. Or no, not Skull and Bones, Steal Your Face, I mean. So now you have kind of the band with the two drummer dead, Donna and Keith, kind of at full strength by 78. I've always been a huge 78 head. And I think that you are too. If I, I remember one time you told me that when you see shows that are highly rated from 78, you like take notice and go listen. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Yeah, I... I'd like 78 Dead. I like the more heavier blues-ish sounds. Um, and this show is an example of that. And uh, yeah, I. it's early 78. I mean, late, late 77, maybe technically. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this this era Dead is probably my favorite. Moving through 78 into 79. Yeah. Before Jerry's voice and uh, nostril cavity completely gives <laughs> to cocaine. This this era dead is my favorite. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think for me, if I was going to try to isolate like a period that's my favorite, the period between like 77 and 78, that threshold would be right there for me because when I got to the point in my Grateful Dead fandom, my deadheadedness, if that's a term, the first shows that I really started to hear and could pick up on like, wow, this is a great show were the closing of Winterland was the very first. I, I heard that and didn't realize that it was like this, you know, super famous show. I didn't know that it started at midnight and ended with them serving breakfast to the audience. I didn't know any of the mythology around it. I just heard it and was like, wow, this sounds great. Um, and then the first Dave's Picks release that I got is from April of 78, um, which was Dick's Picks, sorry, Dave's Picks volume 37. And that was the first, you know, official live release that I got and just like played out. Um, so obviously very recent, um, that came out in 2021, but even still as a result, that time period is something that is, um, I, it's just, I just love it. And I think that you're right. I, there's, I like the variety in the set lists. Um, you get some variety in the early seventies, but not nearly as much as you have at this point when they have so much material to draw from and, um, I like especially two things on, that on this show really come through. 78, and I, some people will say it's 76. Donna's voice sounds phenomenal on this show. Glad you brought that up because there are, I've got some notes here, but this set has a Donna solo, which you don't see a lot. And she sounds great. I know she gets a lot of flack, but I... I was really a fan of how they had her mixed and how she sounded in these recordings. The mix is a great point. The mix on this show, it's a Betty board. Um, so mixed by Betty Cantor Jackson, legendary uh, sound engineer. I mean, and it's just phenomenal. It sounds so good. You can pick up on what all of the different members of the band are doing. And I think that, and I think that Donna said this in an interview that I heard with her on the good old Grateful Dead cast. Um, which I would highly recommend listening to, to everyone that in the mid seventies, when she was first with the band, especially when the wall of sound was in play, she just couldn't hear herself at all on stage versus now they had a little bit better of a, um, an onstage sound experience. Um, and so I think that you can tell that she can hear herself and can kind of even more subtle moments of her singing, um, like in uh, the Scarlet Fire where she's really kind of subtle and just adding a little bit, um, it still sounds fantastic. And Keith too, he sounds great in, in this show and throughout this entire period of time. So I think that late 78, you might it starts to get a little bit messier. I think fall 78 shows I'm not quite as crazy about. There are some that I think I've really liked, but it's not as consistent as this period of, you know, this show is, is excellent, the two shows before this that also became part of Dick's Picks 18 are great. And then there are like five to, to 10 shows in April and May that I've listened to. And I love like everything that I've heard. So let's talk about the set list and just kind of the show more specifically than the background and the period of time. The like we were both saying, we both, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I think I can. We both really like the show a lot. I think the reason that I knew when you started talking about it, that this was a Dick's Pick show was because this is one of the 
10 or 15 dicks picks I have as like my top albums um, because I listen to it a lot and I enjoy the songs that are on there. Yeah, really good set list. Both sets are really, really strong. And then, you know, not just like the set list construction, but just like the playing is excellent. So it starts with Bertha. And where, so among like the songs that they were opening shows with around this period of time, you know, Bertha, pretty common. You might have a Bob Chuck Berry song, Promised Land, which had been an opener forever for them. Um, Mississippi Half Step could have been a show opener around this time. Um, you know, what? where does Bertha rank for you? Because for me, it is right at the top. I think that it's my favorite opener. It's, it's at the top. It's number one. It's such a good way to start a show. It's like, and I will say also, this one too because they play Bertha right into good loving I just think is fantastic so uh starting with Bertha though specifically I mean it's it's great you have a couple of signs of things to come throughout this show the first one that stood up to, that stood out to me was great piano from Keith throughout the show and throughout the song the lead up to Jerry's first solo um the piano is fantastic really kind of driving the song along and it's not and not this was ever a problem for Keith it's not like he's just playing what Jerry's doing it's not like he's copying his licks he's doing his own thing and it really adds to the texture of what's going on and then once the solo begins once Jerry really starts ripping it his tone completely changes and the piano yeah the piano sounds different and just fantastic um, and so the, Keith's piano really stood out to me on this song and then throughout the show, but I thought that he, he came in hot. He was starting the show with a lot of energy and just some great playing. Yeah. The note that I have here is a uh, piano put some swing in it. it. And then Jerry started to get comfy with that. And like you said, they were doing something a little different and, and Jerry, you know, got comfy and took it to a good place. Uh, you were talking about the keys. I, I think what stood out to me here was the bass. The bass is mixed so well in this show where it's not, it doesn't like drive in too much, but it's loud enough to, to really be like in the back of your heart, you know, and get your body like, like into it. Uh, so I thought, and I apologize because about <laughs> two thirds of the notes I took on the show are like bass equals sign cooking <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> including on this song with Bertha, it's, it's mixed really well and it sounds really great. It, it really is. I mean, I think that that is a common, um, you know, a common thing that people will say about the Betty boards. She really found space for all of the instruments to, to take some shine in the mix. And I, I completely agree. There's one note that I have on this song is precise playing, but also with some stank there, you know, when people talk about 77 dead, it's like, they're so precise. You know, they were like so sharp coming out of the studio and the work that they had done after the hiatus. And you can still hear a lot of that in this show. They're, they're tight. And the, even in April, I'm thinking of uh, Dave's picks 37. There are some times when the drummers will lose the thread a little bit and they'll get either a little bit ahead or a little bit behind what else is going on on stage. And that I didn't pick up on that at all throughout this entire show. They were right on. Um, and then they transition from Bertha into good Lovin', and it's a 
really smooth transition. Um, just an excellent way that they met, they kind of meld from Bertha into Good Lovin'. And speaking of, I was saying there are some great signs of things to come. I feel like the same is true for this Good Lovin'. I think it's a really good version, but a lot of what's happening right in this song is it's things that I can say for every song on this, every at least every Bob song on this show, which is great harmonization between Bob and Donna. Their voices sound great together. They're really working well together. Um, and good chemistry between the drummers. You can hear it throughout. Like the way that Mickey is filling in the sound behind um, Bill's backbeat and the way that he's like adding to it. He's doing a lot on um, ride cymbals throughout the show. That sounds good. He's got some cowbells working at different points and it just, it all sounds great to make a really full, just great sound. Bob sounded good, which is a, I think a difference maker and one that maybe doesn't get talked about enough, but when Bob's voice is pitchy or wavy kind of takes away but he is crisp in this good loving, and I think it helps. Um, and then once again, the bass is just like cooking in this in this song. And I, I drew a little star next to it because um, this is uh, this was a particularly good ver- version. I completely agree with all of that. I think it's a particularly good version, and I think that um, just to give Keith another shout out. There's this little groove that he plays right around the four minute mark that is so flowery and light and just great. I I can't picture any other songs where I've heard him play a groove like that. And there are a lot of little moments like that throughout the show where he's doing some weird, cool thing and it just sounds awesome. But your point about um, Bob, I think that this is a, for me, a rare show where that I liked a lot of the Bob songs better than the Jerry songs. And I don't know if it was Jerry just got a chance to sit back and unleash a little bit more with Bob on the mic, but um, yeah, I think three of the five, four of the five songs that I drew a star next to are Bob songs, including Good Lovin'. Yeah, I mean, Jerry, his guitar sound is so so fucking good throughout this entire show you're not lying about that but i i do wonder if you're right maybe it is the the fact that um he's got a little bit more space to just kind of sit back and and shred while bob's singing a lot of these songs um and then like you said and like we're gonna get into in a second then you also have sunshine which is um donna's really one breakout song and passenger which is weirdly a phil lesh song but that bob and donna kind of take the co-lead on singing um, so after Good Lovin', they uh, play what I would describe as the kind of softer part of set one. They go into um, Brown Eyed Women, a song that I know you and I both love. This is uh, a, a good version of Brown Eyed Women. Oh, be, okay. Before we actually keep going, when you were going to guess the four songs from set one that made it into Dick's Picks 18, which four songs would you have guessed? guessed the Bertha and Good Lovin' because of that transition and how good Good Lovin' was. I was going to guess um, Samson and Delilah, and I was going to guess other one. No, okay. Samson on, from Samson on is disc three. So four songs pre-Samson. Okay, okay. Well, then I'll stick with the Bertha Good Lovin'. Give me... 
Let's go back to Tennessee Jed and New Minglewood. <laughs> I like that you set that up with a let's go back to Tennessee. Um, I think that that is a, <laughs> a nice touch. But the ones that are on it are, like you said, Bertha and um, Good Lovin'. And then um, Passenger and New Minglewood. I liked that song. And We'll talk about New Minglewood in a minute too, but makes sense that New Minglewood got picked to go on because this is an all-time, all-time Minglewood. Yeah, so the brown-eyed women, I think is a very good brown-eyed women, but the one from two nights prior in Madison is an all-time brown-eyed women. It's actually um, the most upvoted brown-eyed women on Hetty version um, from February 3rd. So this version I think is also quite good, but um, maybe it just doesn't quite have that je ne sais quoi of the February 3rd version. It's interesting. That version, I went back and listened to it when I realized that they had passed over this one for that one. And really from the beginning, it just sounds different. There's a really great lick that Jerry plays in the intro that is not familiar to me. And I've listened to a lot of different versions of Brown Eyed Women. Um, And I think that that's just kind of something that he was doing around this time, because there's also the same is true for this one the lick that he plays before, um, you know, you can picture the beginning of Brown Eyed Women. There are a couple of measures before the dun, 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 and then the singing starts. Um, But usually it's pretty um, stable. Like it sounds kind of the same. This one sounds a little bit different than a lot of the other Brown Eyed Women and the one on February 3rd definitely does. There's just a little bit more adornment to it. There's a little bit more going on there. Yeah, I thought this was a great, a great brown eyed women overall the beginning of the song especially the drummers kind of take us in and they are absolutely locked in with one another it sounds fantastic jerry's voice sounds so good throughout this song and i do think that it's uh, a nice um kind of showcase for bob's rhythm guitar i texted you about this when i knew you were going to be listening or re-listening to this earlier today to just focus on the right side of your headphones if you're listening on headphones to what Bob is doing during this song. I am not a guitar player, you are, but I could imagine that it would be very easy as a rhythm player to just kind of do the same thing throughout a song and just kind of keep that rhythm going, keep it easy. And it's, you know, not too dissimilar from if you were a beginning drummer, if you were you know, one of the two drummers in this band, I'm just going to keep a steady backbeat. I'm going to make sure that I'm on time for everyone so that everyone else can kind of do what they're going to do around me. That is not what Bob is doing in this song. He is getting out there. He's doing different stuff throughout the song, throughout the different parts of the song. And all of it sounds so damn good. Like his guitar playing on this song is tremendous. And you can, because it's a Betty board, you can really hear it um, in the right side of the mix. And it just sounds excellent it adds a lot to what's going on here you texted me about about this and paying attention i wrote down that it's almost ukulele ish in that it it is a rhythm guitar but it's also like like you said kind of doing its own thing kind of having a good time kind of like someone with a ukulele like just kind of doing your own thing having a good time um and then it, it also kind of sounds like there's some upstrumming going on and it gave me a Island in the Sun vibes by Weezer, like just happy and upbeat and, you know, kind of going its own way. And I, I was glad you, you noticed that. And I agree with you. I think he's, 
he's having a good, he's coming off a, a hot, good loving. Randy Smith, NBA all-star MVP said it's one of the lovings he's ever heard. And he just got to enjoy some brown eyed women. Yeah. I, I love that comparison to Island in the sun, uh, especially because there's something lighthearted about the way that he is playing. I think that that is really fitting. There's something, there's a little bit of that throughout this show, especially the first set. Um, around this time in the late seventies, there was not a lot of like stage banter and stage talk from the dead a little bit, but not a lot in the early seventies, you get more of it. I mean, not that they were ever really big on that, but in like 72 shows, Bob will like kind of chat with the crowd sometimes when they're tuning or whatever, especially throughout Europe 72. There are a lot of examples of that. Whereas by this point in time um, and really for a while at this point, really 73, 74 onward, they weren't talking a lot. And in this, they have a couple of moments where they do. And even like the way Bob sends everyone off for the set break, uh, it sounds like he's having a little bit of fun. I might just be reading way too much into that, but that's my takeaway. Um, so yeah, I think that the lighthearted nature of the way that he's playing and kind of just the, like you're saying, easygoingness of it all is really great. From Brown Eyed Women, they go into El Paso, kind of continuing in this little bit more um, low tempo, kind of softer part of set one. And I mean, for me, El Paso is probably my favorite of the Bobby Cowboy songs. I, I think they played this song really well. I think it suits them really well and it suits Bob's vocals well. And um, this version is no exception. I, I mean, I, I really like this version of El Paso. Jerry has some great, like playful little guitar licks in during the beginning. This song doesn't have like a typical verse chorus structure, but in the, the beginning of the, of the song, um, the, throughout the entire second half of this song, Phil's bass is kind of at the forefront of the mix, I think, and just sounds phenomenal. Um, and so I, I'm imagining, given how much you were paying attention to the bass, that you you liked that part as well. I did. My complaint with this song was that it was too short. It's a very, very short, quick, tight, what, four minutes El Paso. And, uh, you know, as, as the bass got cooking more and more, I was like, I could have used another... 90 seconds, two minutes of, of El Paso. Um, my other note from this, uh, as my attention span started to waver, and we talked about El Paso, Texas, um, I thought of University University of Northern Iowa's buzzer beater over Texas in 2016. I kind of flashed back to a little sports and a little college basketball, and uh, I remember that clear as day. I skipped class to watch March Madness that day. And what I remember is Texas, like it didn't play defense. They let the dude walk it right up to half court and take a Hail Mary shot and it went in. Um, but then as the base started to, the base kind of brought me back in and I was like, oh, dang, this is, oh, it's over. That was my reaction listening to this. Yeah. And it's interesting there. That's a good point. It is a pretty tight El Paso. Um, they didn't jam it out very much. And there are some other songs in this set, uh, spoiler alert, not this set, actually the second set where I think that they went a little bit longer than I would expect, or maybe even want them to play. So it's interesting that this one was so tight. I agree. I could have, um, I would have been there for more of it. The next song is a song that was um, about eight minutes long and I mean, it makes sense because it's always a little bit more of a jam vehicle, but it's Tennessee Jed, which is a song that you and I uh, maybe have differing opinions of. 
I mean, I thought agree on <laughs> what I want from you the next time you listen to the show. Just listen to the first five seconds of Tennessee Jed. Listen to the crowd roar when this jam comes on. They are pumped in Iowa to be talking about Tennessee. They are. I did notice that. They they're locked in. They're really ready for some some Tennessee. Um, and this is a fine version of Tennessee Jed. It's my, my problem with Tennessee Jed is that most of them just sound pretty much the same to me. Um, I just, I don't think that it's that interesting of a song for them for the amount of time that they play it. And this one just kind of plods right along the way Jed normally does. Um, I think that it is uh, an, an interesting, somewhat interesting version. Some of the stuff that Jerry's doing uh, in his solo at the end of the song is really fantastic. And so I think that this is an above average Jed. I will say that. There, every now and then I get a Jed that stands out and I'm like, okay, this is why people really like this song. And this is, this is one of them. This is a good version. But I do wish if they were going to, you know, the balance of this 12-minute segment between El Paso and Tennessee, I would have liked maybe more of it to be spent um, out in the West Texas town rather than um, Tennessee. Uh, as a Jed defender, I, I actually don't disagree with that. I think um, had they shifted another couple minutes to El Paso, that would have been fine you would have hated what happened with this about five and a half minutes in my browser just decided to refresh on its own. So I got to listen to about 14 minutes of Tennessee Jed because I just went back and replayed it from the beginning. Um, so I got the glorious second time. Um, but yeah, I, I don't disagree that they all kind of sound similar. I think the acoustics of the dome kind of made the the minor chords and the pre-chorus almost haunting which i think they're supposed to be but it was emphasized a little more in this version and and then on to a donna solo that completely took me by surprise the first time i listened to this yeah i've, I've always liked this song sunrise 78 is prime sunrise time we get a lot of uh of sunrise throughout this year and I think that people's opinion of this song is really, really hinges upon their opinion of Donna generally in the band. There are people who by this point, especially if they've been going to a lot of shows throughout, you know, the early seventies, they probably didn't have much time for Donna. And so they weren't really as excited about sunrise for me, if I'm going to compare God show um, individual songs, sunrise is the best one. Not that there are that many, but um let me sing your blues away off of, uh, I think it's off of Wake of the Flood, a Keith original song. Not really for me. The song's fine, but they didn't play it live very often for a reason. It's just, I don't know. Whereas Sunrise, I kind of like this song and her voice sounds fantastic on it. Yeah, it sounds so good. Um, and on your point of, you know, it depends on what you think about Donna. I mean, we weren't there. We weren't going to these shows. Um, but for me, my, my opinion of her, go look at her resume. And th that's all I got to say. Like, she has been a singer in some impressive, impressive bands. Uh, and none more impressive um, than a singer with Elvis Presley. And then she went into the Grateful Dead. So that's really all I'll say about her and about this. We can do a, a deep Donna dive at some point in the future. But um, no, I, I wrote 
a Donna song exclamation point sounds great. It does. And I, I did not do my due diligence. Um, I do wonder though, where this, where the sunrise ranks among on heady version. And, you know, I mean, that's just the opinions of individuals, you know, your mileage may vary. Um, but I do wonder if it got some votes. It doesn't look like it did. Most of the top sunrises are from 77, um, which, you know, fair enough. Uh, you've got one from Pembroke Pines, Pembroke Pines, Florida at the end of May 77, the Buffalo 77 show, which is a great show, Winterland in June, and then uh, the William and Mary version that was on um, Dave's Picks 37. So you know, that's fair enough. I, I do think that this version was good though. And I think the part of what made it good or made it especially interesting to me is the band is really playing softly during this song. They're giving her space to really kind of let her vocals shine and compared to, you know, first of all, that's not easy with six people. Um, and Donna too, with seven people on stage, but, uh, you know, that's, there's a lot of people. Oh no. Yeah, six people, including Donna on stage, but that's a lot of it's five people playing instruments and her singing um, hard to maybe find space, but they really kind of open it up for her to have space. So I thought a nice that was a just a nice part of, again, what I'm referring to in my mind is like the quieter part of the set. Brown Eyed Women, El Paso, Tennessee Jets, Sunrise. You have none of those are really rockers. None of them are the up-tempo Bertha Good Lovin' combo that we got at the beginning, nor are they the up-tempo New Minglewood Blues that we're about to go into, which is absolutely hot. Um, I know this is one of your favorite Dead songs, so why don't you tell me what you think about it? Well, and I just think that, like you said, there's three songs in a row that aren't really jammy, and then you get the the true palate cleanser of a soft sunrise before we're back to neutral and we're ready to bring it down to Minglewood. This is a top five Minglewood for me all time. I mean, this is upbeat, tight. And then I hadn't really noticed it as much as you did in the first two songs. You were talking about the drums when I was talking about the bass, but the drums start pumping for me in this um, at this point in the show. The, the use of toms during this song are really, really well done. Um, and I guess as the Minglewood expert, I'll close it out by saying the secret to the song has always been the keys. Any good version, any good Dead and Company version, it's all about the keys. And the keys are actually a little calm here until about the 215, 230 mark. And then they show up big time. And it, it just really takes the song to another level. So this was a, this was a, great experience going on uh in this song love it yeah i thought this was a great version um one of my notes was just that the playing is so sharp you know you've got that same precision from um 77 really shining through on this version and when you look at the way that people talk about new manglewood um i was just looking at heady version and all of the top versions are from 77 and 78 this is when they really i think found their their groove here also bob singing is Excellent. I was just going to bring that up. His roar at the beginning um, with Lion's Den and like we talked about with Good Lovin'. He is just, whatever whatever he drank that day, like however he coated his throat, it was... It absolutely was. And I think we're actually not even at the peak of Bob's voice in this show yet. But 
he sounded fantastic on this song. It really adds a lot to it. Um, and just again, my only, if, if I have a problem with this, the only problem that I have is that then they go from New Minglewood, which is so hot and excellent into the slow arrangement of friend of the devil that they're playing at this point in time. Um, I know you and I've talked about this, the way that they play friend of the devil on uh, the album version, it's fast, jaunty. And I love that. I love the way that it sounds. And I get that that's maybe not as easy to play live, especially with the extra instrumentation that they have in the studio version. But this slow arrangement is just usually not as, as good for me, but they get some pace here by the end of this song. And I actually, as far as, as slower versions of Friend of the Devil go, I really liked this one. I think that the interplay between uh, Jerry and Keith, um, even pre-solo, was really great. And then the, the solo by Jerry was phenomenal. Um, just ascendant guitar playing by the end of this song. And so I, I really, I thought that this was a good version. And although, again, I maybe don't wish that they would have slowed it down the way they do into the beginning of Friend of the Devil. By the end, we're back up to, you know, some pace and some energy as we get toward the end of set one. It, it seemed an interesting set placement after you have that, like a little slower portion of set one with those four songs in a row that aren't really heaters. And then coming off a hot Minglewood, it would have been interesting had they flipped them. Like Sunrise into Friend of the Devil, Friend of the Devil crescendos picks up at the end. Boom, drop a hot Minglewood passenger back to back on you. That, you know, I guess if I was tinkering with how they pick their set list, I would have been like, hey, let's switch those around. But completely agree. We're not as high on Friend of the Devil as other people, but this is a good version. Just it might be in the wrong place. Yeah, I think that my problem is that I actually am very high on Friend of the Devil. I love this song. It's just the slower version of it that I don't like. I've had um, one of my friends that I tried to get into the dead. I was playing this song for him and he said, oh, let me play this version by Mumford and Sons. And we got like two seconds into it. And I was like, this is just, I'm just going to tell you right now, this is not it for me. This is way too slow and like somber. Whereas like the... Uh, the word I, I'm going to use it again. It's jaunty. The one on the album is fast. It's fun. It's like very just, it's just a, a different beast altogether than this slowed down version. And so I think that that's part of why the, this version, these, you know, this era after the hiatus, really, um, it just doesn't really do it for me. Um, but as you mentioned, the next song is passenger. I actually think that this is my highlight of set one. I think that this is a fantastic, fantastic version of this song. And it's not a song that I really would have, you know, ever put down as like a top 15, top 20 Grateful Dead tune. Um, it's, I, I, it's an interesting one, again, because Phil wrote it, but his voice wasn't what it used to be at this point. And so he wrote it for Bob to sing. And when Bob and Donna kind of combine and harmonize on this, it sounds awesome, but the, the music behind them, uh, especially Jerry's guitar on this song stands out to me. It's just, it's so damn good. It sounds amazing. The pace is great. And um, just the, the playing by everyone is just so, so great on this song. It stood out to me here. And uh, what else stood out to me was uh, the drums. They were pumping once again with some excellent fills in this song and 
you know, again, Bob, we are crushing it on the vocals like that. I think that might've been the difference maker here. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's him and Donna both just together sounding great. There are, there are harmonies on this one. It, it's like I was saying for, um, uh, good loving their, their harmonizing was just on point throughout this entire show. And this song was fantastic. I would not have thought if I had looked at this set list that I would have been saying passenger was my highlight of set one, but I think that it was for me. I really, really liked it. Uh, the deal that closes out set one and the reason why we picked this show, um, it's a good version of deal. I, I have a note here. Have I ever met a deal? I didn't like, I don't think I have. Um, they just, they don't miss with this song, whether it's, you know, at the beginning of a set or at the end of a set. And, um, I just, I think this was a, as good a version. Um, uh, maybe not as good a version as any, but it's a good version and, um, really good energy throughout. And especially the build toward the end of the song, um, just the way that they closed it out to close out set one awesome fun way to close that and that's what i was talking about earlier with bob when he says we're going to take a quick break we'll be back in just a sec it sounds like he's having a good time and why wouldn't you be after playing this version of deal i wrote one thing for this version of deal boy phil is crushing it on the bass today i I agree with you this was not a top five or top ten deal they've ever played of all time but they just every time i see a deal in the set list I, i it puts a smile on my face set one what would you what would you give like how would you rate it holistically? I'd give set one a seven and a half out of ten. Um really, really good start. A just a great new Minglewood in there, which I know is subjective, but it means a lot to me. And then a good ending. I think, like I talked about earlier, um, I think if you had switched Friend of the Devil and New Minglewood around, um, and I get that they're trying to do the every other Bob Jerry song, you know, to cater to that and whatever, but I I think it's great, not elite, but that's about to change when they come back on stage. I think that's really well. What's the grade? I think that that's really well said. I think that I would probably give it an eight in, in the, in the eights range. I thought it was good. And as far as like songy quote unquote, um, first sets, they played 10 songs. Um, so, you know, that's, that's nothing crazy. It's not like they played 15 songs and all of them were short and they were just cranking through the, the tunes in set one. But I liked the way that they performed all of these songs. I don't think that there were any that stood out as like lackluster. I think that the the playing was really good. And um, I think that you've got good moments. And if you think about the show and basically like the set in like three segments, you have the opener, the birth of good loving, then you have that slowed down section in the middle and then the end from new mingle went on. There are great moments in all three. So I, I think that I would give it a little bit higher of a rating. Um, but I agree. I think set two is what really stands out about this show. And apparently that's what uh, David Lemieux thought as well when he was making Dick's Picks Volume 18, because every song from here out, with the exception of U.S. Blues, the encore, is is on disc three of Dick's Picks 18. This is a fantastic, fantastic second set. And it starts with the greatest rendition of Samson and Delilah I've ever heard. Not, I don't think I'm mincing words. This is the highest rated one on Hetty version for a reason. It is not at the beginning one that you would think would be because Bob's mic is off. And so they jam for like three minutes before Bob can finally come in. And 
you know, the way that you know that it's a problem with his mic is that Jerry and Donna are singing their part of what would be the first verse of uh, Samson and Delilah. And then they back off because they know that they can't hear Bob and they go into a jam that is so hot. I don't even know how else to describe it. I mean, just smoking hot. Uh, And this entire version really is, but um, just to kind of step through it in order, obviously I'm extremely excited about this version because I think it's great. The intro from the drummers, the drummers come on first. And I think it's Mickey on the ride symbol with um, Bill playing, you know, a more kind of traditional backbeat. Then Phil comes in. That part with just the rhythm devils is amazing at the start. Then Jerry comes in, Keith comes in, it becomes, the and Bob comes in, obviously, it becomes the more full sound, but man, that intro is good. And then it just, it just gets into a, like, I, I think this is the longest version of Samson and Delilah I've ever heard too, because of the tech problems in the beginning. It's like 11 minutes long and it just is relentless. How come they did not play this more as like a set one opener? Because with this kind of energy, I mean, this Birth of Good Lovin was a great opener here in this show, but just in general, this, what they were doing here on a cold winter's night in Iowa, like really set the tone. And it set the tone for a great set too. But I mean, if you're playing in the South, set the tone for a great show, whole show. So I wrote down, how come this isn't played more as a set one opener? Just setting the tone. Um, Only three times. Once in 76, once in 83, and once in 93. So you're right. They never, they virtually never did. Out of 2000 shows, they did three times. Basically, they never did it. Um, And you're right. This is a... uh, uh, just a, a great high energy way to start it. But the, the thing is, I guess maybe the, um, the, the reason why just to completely speculate, it didn't always sound this hot. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And I mean, Samson and Delilah, I, it basically was a song, as I understand that they pretty much only played on Sundays, which continues to still be a thing with dead and company. If it's a Sunday show, you can count on a Samson and Delilah. If it's any other day of the week, probably not. And so I wonder if maybe, it's kind of like um, one more Saturday night where everyone's kind of expecting it to come later, usually in the second set. Um, I'm not really sure, but man, what a good version. This part, I've marked it down it's between two minutes and three minutes. Keith's piano is just kind of running. He's running up and down the keys. And it's like, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it in after right here. I mean, it's just fantastic. Um, the ascending tune that, then Jerry joins in on around that part between 2.30 and 3.30 is fantastic. Mickey's sound, what he's doing on the cymbals sounds awesome. Phil bombs throughout the entire song. I mean, it's just legitimately, I mean, I can't say enough about how awesome this version of uh, Samson and Delilah is. Plug it in and, and play it because that's going to gonna show you all you need to know. Yep.
energy goes right into the Scarlet Begonias that comes after this. First, there's an <laughs> like a one minute thirty second joke that Bob tells, um, which is kind of odd. <laughs> and um, I wouldn't say it's like hysterical. It's interesting. It it took me about twenty seconds, and once I got it, I I disagree. I think it was really funny. <laughs> I think that. I think that what's funny about it is when he's talking about cutting down trees and Bill starts playing this like drum roll to signify like trees falling down in the background. <laughs> um, so next song, like I said, uh, Scarlet Begonias, absolutely scorching hot. Samson, like I said, Samson and Delilah, it's the, it's the highest upvoted version on heady version by a significant margin. And this Scarlet Fire is the second highest on Eddie version, only behind Cornell, which is, I mean, when I think of Scarlet Fire, that's what I think of is the Cornell version. And this version is, I mean, it's, it is really, really good. Um, the intro with just the guitarist to, to Scarlet Begonias is great. The way that they started out, the solo from Jerry is amazing. And really the whole, kind of post singing part it's a 12 minute ish rendition the first six minutes you got a, the little intro jam then the the song part and then the last six minutes is a, is just a jam and the way that that unfolds the way that the band does that the thing that they always do in scarlet where they kind of stop on a dime and then start building the sound back first with the drums um that sounds excellent and then there's like around, I have it written down as around 9.45. Um, there's just this really exploratory and chaotic section of the song. And Phil's bass is really cutting through and sounds amazing. But that, that entire part of the jam at the end of Scarlet, like the last two minutes, just sounds unique and fantastic. I completely agree. And that trippy psychedelic portion... Um... I think made it stand out. This was a song where I thought the like edgy feedback that you could tell they were getting in inside the dome. I think that helped this song go from how I think a lot of people see it as a, the happy warm up to the upbeat fire. And I think in this combo, this like kind of edgier raw version helps it flip-flop from you know the happy warm-up to the main event um because of how how good they were playing that night i love the way you said that the main event i completely agree i think that this song is the main event between the two i think that by the end of fire on the mountain after literally 30 minutes of on fire playing from samson into the middle of fire they it seems like they kind of hit a wall um toward the end of fire Whereas Scarlet is just ripping throughout. And I, I completely agree. I think that that is the main event of this one-two punch. And it sounds excellent. It's interesting to me. Well, it's mildly interesting to me that Phil seems to be the one who brings them into fire. When there's like 30 seconds-ish left on the Scarlet portion of these tracks, you can hear Phil just start to kind of tease the, the, the baseline a little bit. And then Jerry picks up on it and he starts to go for it. And then, you know, then they all make the, the turn into fire on the mountain, but overall it's a really seamless transition. 
great jam that leads from, you know, like I said, the six minute mark of Scarlet into Fire on the Mountain. Um, and Phil's bass sounds great bridging that gap. It's interesting to me, one thing I wrote about Fire is that Jerry kind of changed the tone in his guitar. There's a little bit more wah in uh, Fire on the Mountain and it, it sounds good. It fits the song really well, but it's, it's great that he kind of changed the tone between songs and it makes it sound distinct, even though they're staying within that one-two punch, that jam of uh, Scarlet Fire. Um, with this fire, I wrote down solid, not spectacular, superseded by the Scarlet before it. And that's not to say that this is a bad fire, but I didn't even think about that, but I completely agree. After about 30 minutes of just ripping it, they were they probably needed a breather, um, but they didn't really get one. <laughs> No, they didn't. It's funny because yeah, they, they hit a little wall. Um, I think at the, toward the end of this fire on the mountain, it doesn't take too much away because it's, they're still, it's a great Scarlet fire. Um, but then they go right into trucking, which is obviously a very up-tempo, um, you know, rocking song. And I think it's a fine version of trucking. I don't think it's a standout really in any way. Although I do think that this is worth noting. One of the comments that I found on um, dead.net from jet S says uh, my favorite part of the concert was the kickoff of trucking the road semis, like the 18 wheelers were backed up inside the arena floor to bookend the stage at the beginning of trucking. The stage crew had some sort of fireworks rigged in the stacks of the semis, which they fired off to start the song. Then the diesel, the diesels roared for the first part of the song, blowing smoke into the arena air classic. So <laughs> that's a great comment. I'm so glad that that person wrote about that. Um, you can hear it a little bit there. You can hear the engines and the cheers at the beginning of uh, trucking. There's that little gap between fire and trucking where you can hear it happening, um, which I think is cool. And it's interesting that they could just wheel the trucks right in. It makes sense. They're setting up their stage. Um, but yeah, it is interesting. Um, but then I would say the, the flip side of that is, this is the era where the dead were playing a whistle. I have no idea who was doing it at the beginning of trucking. Um, but you can hear it in some 77 versions, like the famous, you know, English town show. They do it. Uh, one of my favorite shows from April of 78 is at is at Duke university at Cameron indoor stadium. They do it there too. And even though that one's on video, which I've, I've watched, I still have no idea who's blowing the whistle. I suspect it's Bob, but I have no, no real reason to, to think that besides the fact that he's the lead singer of the song. Maybe it's Jet. Maybe Jet was just so pumped for the start of trucking that he, he just trucker's whistle and was like, let's go guys. Just going to town. I think it, it's gotta be Bob or Phil, right? Probably. I mean, because I, at first I was thinking, is this Donna? Because she, does, she doesn't have really much to do on stage at this point. But I don't know. It feels like a very Bob thing to do, to play a whistle, to lead into a song. I don't know. I, I, I don't think that it adds a lot <laughs> to the experience. Having been at concerts where uh, there's a whistle, part of a song, when, when someone whistles into a mic, in a, especially a small arena, not that this one was small, it is absolutely piercing to your eardrum um so i'm not a huge fan of whistles in a stage act uh that might be a personal bias i just i don't really think that it adds anything to the song although this version of uh of trucking is is again fine i think the back half of it is especially rocking i think they gained some of their energy back um 
And I think the, you know, the intro on guitar and bass that's usually played, like when they repeat that later in the song, in the back half, like you talked about, it is like tight and they are together. And if they had done that instead of the whistle, that would have been great. Um, I thought the whistle was cool and interesting, but yeah, not, not as good as what they were doing by the, by the end of this song. Yeah. That part of the end, you're so right. They're, they're so locked in and it's, it's that great thing that the Grateful Dead will do where they are playing it perfectly, but with a little bit of stank on it, you know, it's not just exactly what they're doing in the studio. It's a more energetic, more raw version, which is true of a lot of the way, a lot of the songs on here. It's just more raw. I mean, just gritty is not the right word, but it, it just, it does sound really good. Um, My thoughts on this trucking were the same as deal. Like I, I always smile when I see trucking on a set list. Cause I think it's a great song. This version didn't blow me out of the water, but I'm glad that, they got to celebrate with some fireworks and enjoy themselves. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, it, you know, also credit where it's due. It's not like trucking shouts out Iowa when it's name checking all the cities, you know, they didn't have to do this for fan service. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it sounds good. The next song is labeled as drums. I think you could argue that this is more of an extended intro to the other one. I mean, right around the 32nd mark, the drummers are already doing, the classic the other one intro and then they go away from it a little bit but then they come back to it it's also only like two minutes long and this is the era this this tour really this one in february this little mini run is the last one before drums in space really became a part of every show by april they're doing you know 20 minute drums into space and it's interesting if you look at the breakdown of how many times they played space it's like four times in the 40 shows throughout 77 and it's like 72 times or something throughout 78. It really became a part of the show toward the end of 78. And then obviously for the rest of their time as a band and every iteration of the band afterward. Um, so for people who are not big space heads, um, you know, people who might want that exploratory jam to come for a dark star or, or the other one um, really, um, you know, this is their last last bit of not having space to rely on as a bathroom break. This uh, drum, this drums does sound good, but again, I just think that it, I think of it more of as, as an intro to the other one. And a good intro it is because the other one is top notch here. I mean, this was fantastic. The heavy bass in the intro and the early presence of the bass here, I think, really set the tone. And we've talked about her before, but Donna nailing the coming around, you know, in this song was a was was good to listen to. Sounds like Jerry kind of told everybody, like during drums, just let me go. Like, I'll, because I don't think he stops playing at like 140 beats per minute on his solos. Like, he is going the whole time. 
But I think the rest of them kind of ignored him and also brought the high energy behind him because everything, bass, piano, drums are really hitting it well here while he is elevating it to another level. So the energy and kind of like the the charge after only a two-minute break, it's only like a two-minute drums, was really, really fantastic. And what you were saying about Passenger in set one, that's what I was thinking about with the other one in set two. Was not expecting this to be, I think, the best song in this set. And I, that's going to be a hot take with the best Samson and Delilah, the best Scarlet Begonias outside of Cornell. But I thought they were doing good, good stuff here. I don't think that people would be too mad at you for saying that. This version is unbelievable. And you're right. It's like everything about it that's great. There's Phil's bass in the beginning is unreal. And there's a part in the in the drums part where you can hear someone yelling, yeah, Phil, or something like that, which made me wonder if he was maybe playing one of the drums at some point, the way that, you know, I haven't really seen too many videos of the drums part of like of, of dead shows really, or at least not that I've paid close attention to, but now dead and co O'Teal plays drums with the band during drums in space. You know, he's part of the rhythm section. So he he'll jump in. So it made me wonder if he was doing something there. I don't really think so. It sounded like, it sounded to me like the two drummers were just at their kits. I don't think that they were like behind on the stage playing other drums, but there's no real way to know. But I mean, it could just be that he was, they, they knew that he was locked in on, on his bass because he sounds amazing in the beginning of this song. Donna sounds great. Um, what she's doing is, is excellent. And you're right. Jerry is just absolutely on fire. This version is kind of like raunchy. Does that make sense? Is that? And I think that's why I liked it. To yeah. be honest, it, you've been using the word stank. They said this was going to be the stankiest other one we've done on the long <laughs> Yeah, it's it's great. I, I really I love this version of um, the other one. I like the song a lot in general, and this was really good. Um, and then they continue right from here. They go really smoothly into War Frat, which is a song that I love. I love the prominence that it's taken on in the Deadhead community. I like going to Dead and Company shows now and seeing the War Frat stable for people who are, you know, living a sober lifestyle and need, you know, maybe want some support from other sober heads. Uh, having meetings and whatnot during the set break. I think that that's really cool. Um, I think that Jerry's vocals sound fantastic, which I wasn't necessarily expecting because by the end of Truck, and even though he's only kind of supporting uh, vocals on that song, his voice kind of sounded like it was starting to go a little bit, um, which makes sense after Scarlet and Fire. You know, he's really belting it out. But then he has uh, truck in his voice kind of sounded like it was going, but it's fully back by this song. He sounds great. And um, the interplay between Bobby and the drums at the beginning of this song is, is great. Uh, so I, I thought that that was really good. And that overall, this is just a really strong version of a song that I like a lot. Yeah. And we got some groove in the second half of the song too. Um, yeah. Just, I mean, coming out hot with the other one, maybe like you could argue a little bit of a letdown um because like you go from really really hot high energy to like the lower beginning similar to the friend of the devil in the first set but the groovy second half of this song i think brought as soon as they started playing it i was like uh okay 
but by the end of it, I was, I was pleased that they had played it. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's like the, the slower Jerry ballad always has a home at the end of set two, right? Like whether it's coming out of space into something like Stella blue or this or the wheel later. Yep. 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 And this kind of the other one takes the exploratory jam portion of set two when with no space and so this song kind of feels natural coming out of that maybe just to my listening experience because i'm so used to it but i do agree that the as as you know as chalky as that is a jerry ballad after the exploratory jam around and around to close out set two is as chalk as chalk gets for 78 dead this is their most commonly played song of 78 aside from drums in space and um frankly <laughs> What I was saying earlier about the short El Paso, and there are some other songs later on that I didn't need to be as long as they were. I don't think I needed an 11 minute around and around to close the show. Um, it's, I think that it's a great transition from Wharf Rat into this song. Um, it sounds excellent. And, you know, that I thought was surprising. Not not surprising, but this is only the second time they had made that transition. Many times to come after this that they would do that Warfrat into around and around, but they'd only done it once before this. And so it was interesting that it just sounded so seamless and smooth because those songs are not necessarily like natural bridges between one or the other. So I thought that that was really good. But then by the six minute mark, I was kind of good on um, Bob's Berry tune, uh, Bob's Chuck Berry cover. Um, so I don't think that this was a great way to close set two, but it, it's fine. It's kind of my take on it. Yeah, I thought the the guitar solo here, here stood out as top notch. Um, and that, I think, saved it from being an average closer to a good closer. Um, you're getting it around and around closer, so you just got to accept it. And I, I thought the guitar solo here was... Uh, was cooking and ended the show on a good, a good note. Yeah. Well, I mean, then the show really ends on the U S blues encore. Um, and I love, love U S blues as an encore. I think Same. it's a great way to send the people home. Um, I wrote that. I don't think that this is quite as good as what I think of as the, the goat version of this song, which was just a couple months later um, on April 12th in Durham um, at the Cameron indoor stadium. But I do a little bias though, because you live in Durham. So (laughs) factor that in when you're in a lot. It's a double bias too, because there's also a video of that version. And so I do wonder how much of my enjoyment of that version comes from being able to see how much fun they seem like they're having playing it. Like as far as like late seventies videos of the band, obviously there are not a ton. Jerry looks like he's having the time of his goddamn life up there playing U.S. Blues at at uh, at Duke, and so I think that that adds to the enjoyment, seeing how much fun they seem to be having. And Phil too. Phil is like dancing his ass off during that version of U.S. Blues, and so they're they're really having a good time. Um, but I do think that this is a a really good version of this song. I think that um, it's not as sharp as that Durham version, although I think Jerry's vocals are actually more sharp. Um, but his playing isn't quite as as good as it is on the in the April version. But there is a lot of that same just like raw energy and enthusiasm, which a lot of times you get in this song because it's such a fun rocker to play, I would imagine. Um, and Jerry's just going for it and um, really uh, 
stanking up, raunching up the notes he's playing in a similar way to what he's doing on the other one that I just think sounds great. On, on your point of this should be a fun one to play, this is one of the few Grateful Dead songs where I think the rhythm power chord guitar stands out as the main character and that like driving bluesy easy to play power chord and that's one of the reasons i've always loved us blues because it's a different sound for them and it's a different sound in general where you always expect the lead guitar to be what stands out like the guitar solo and around and around right before it but us blues is always a song where i think the rhythm guitar is always my favorite part of the song but yeah a great encore and it's done a lot but i don't think it's overdone it's just such a good bow to put on pretty much any show yeah i agree it's fantastic and a, a, a good you know a good way to send the people home into a cold iowa night and into a little um little gap for the band where now it's a month before their next show Overall, I think that set two is definitely stronger than set one. I mean, I, to, to me, it's about as good a second set as you're going to find anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's hard to find a spot where this doesn't get a 10 out of 10 as a second set. Maybe that spot is the like last four minutes of Fire on the Mountain. That's about it. That's the only weak point really of this whole set yeah i agree 10 10 out of 10 completely i i really do think that um it's almost surprising that it was it took 18 volumes of uh dicks picks for this one to get released um i do wonder if it had to do with the fact that they didn't have the betty boards I, i wonder if that's when they finally got a good version of this. And I wonder if they have any regrets about putting it out as a, a, a portion of a show, a partial show rather than a full show, given how good it is. Um, maybe someday if we get a chance to talk to Dave Lemieux, we can ask him about that. But um, I, I really do think it's just an excellent, excellent second set in the midst of a really good year that stands out to me as a great year in Grateful Dead history. Even still, this one stands out. I think that having listened to the full show it pretty much immediately became one of my favorite shows from one of my favorite years. Um, definitely a show I will go back to um, again to listen to. So a couple questions for you as we kind of bring it home. Where does this show rank among your favorite Grateful Dead shows? Is it in that pantheon? Is it not? Or what do you, what do you make of it? I'll, I'll do the people of Iowa solid. Pantheon is, is what? Just top, Four, something like that yeah i'll put it at the um the lower end of the top five okay or five yeah high praise shout out to the people of iowa and cedar falls um where how would this song factor in to if you were recommending it to someone would you recommend this song as a potential entry point for someone who isn't familiar with the dead? Or do you think that it's more advanced listening? No, I wouldn't. I think it's more advanced listening. I think I would recommend it actually as a point. If someone's like someone dove into the grateful dead and they listened to 60 shows and they're like, all right. And now they're, they're starting to find other music to listen to. I'd be like, hang on, don't, don't leave them just yet. Listen to this show. And it would, I think the set two would pull them back in. 
that's how I would use this dead show. Someone's interested, they they get their fill and they're like, all right. And then they start to venture into other artists. Like, hang on. Come back. Yeah, I think that that's a good way of thinking about it. I could see myself recommending this to um, a couple of friends of mine who maybe are somewhat familiar with the dead, but not heads by any stretch and who might be looking for good live shows um, to experience for the first time. I think this song, this album would be, or this show rather, would be a really good one to work out to. <laughs> There's a lot of high energy going on. I didn't even think about that, but absolutely. Yeah, there, there's uh, there's just a lot of good stuff happening for, for that. Yeah, especially that version of the other one, like upbeat, go for a run. Um, that's a good point. Uh, but overall, I just, I really liked listening to this show. I like talking about it. I think that we've talked about it now for almost as long as the show runs, um, which is uh, an ad, just uh, a reflection of how good the show is, um, that we can talk about it for so long and have so many different thoughts about all of the different songs. Um, so on that note, I think we can close this thing out. Any final thoughts about um, February 5th, 1978 at the Unidome? A, a question and then a final thought. Uh, my question, if you were building a playlist and you could only take one song from each dead show to add to your playlist, what's the one song you're taking from this entire set to add to your playlist? It doesn't have to be the best. It doesn't have to be like the Samson and Delilah, the best version of that song, but the one that you liked that you're taking from this and plugging into your, your playlist. It would, I think it would be Samson and Delilah because it, I think that my favorite song on this, in this show was probably Scarlet Begonias. That's a song that I've always loved by the dead. It's really, that was like the first song of theirs that I heard, you know, when I was a kid, I had heard, uh, Casey Jones and Truckin and Touch of Grey, although I didn't really know that that was the Grateful Dead um, because it's such a different era. Casey Jones and Truckin were the two songs that my parents both liked. And so they would kind of play around the house. Um, And then I heard Scarlet Begonia's late much later in life and was like whoa this song is great what what let me explore this band more so i always love that song and this version i think is especially good but if i were going to make a playlist and only take one song it would be between samson and delilah and passenger and i would take samson because it's such a uniquely great version i think the passenger too i think i I really love this version of that song but i I'm not sure that it's like the best passenger. And I mean, I don't know if, um, I don't know. I think that the Samson and Delilah just stands out more. It's, it's so unique. And especially because again, Bob's mic is not. And so the beginning has like such a long extended jam. It's just unlike any other Samson I've ever heard. And that uniqueness, I think would be why I would take it. Which one would you take to put on your playlist? You talked about being torn between two. I was torn between uh, New Minglewood, classic, and the other one and thought about it for a while. I think I would take the other one just because of what they had going on in set two was so good. Um, And that doesn't mean, you know, another version of the other one couldn't be on this imaginary playlist, but there are a lot of versions of New Minglewood I like. There are not a lot of other ones where I like star them or know how fantastic they are. So for that reason, 
I'm picking the other one. That's similar reason to what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like, it's like, yeah, there might be other ones that are better, but this is, yeah, there are not as many Samsons that I hear and I'm like, whoa. So I think that that's why I would pick that one. I think the other one is fantastic. That, that might be, if I was going to do like a top three, I think I'd probably go Scarlet and then the other one in Samson in some order. Hard to for me to distinguish between the three of them. The other one also is interesting to put on the playlist because it's more dead. You know, there's that exploratory jam at the end. It's more what um, deadheads love about the band. And so it makes a lot of sense to have that one, the big jam piece in the second set. I don't think you can go wrong there. Yeah. And it's been a while because we've been talking for a while, but honorable mention to that good loving in the beginning. Yeah. Come back around to that. And, and then the final point that I wanted to make, um, it's just fitting that the first podcast ever was technically an upload of the song U.S. Blues that was done just to kind of see if the idea of a podcast software would work. Uh, so it's fitting that the first podcast ever was an upload of U.S. Blues and our first podcast ever ends with U.S. Blues ringing out into the Iowa night. Does not get much better than that. And on that note, I think we can we can bid you good night. So uh, thank you, Dave. I appreciate it. And um, to the audience, we will see you next time. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.